It may be the most addictive toy in history, and it's definitely the hottest thing this Christmas. Nintendo Video Games. Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. On this episode, we are discussing one of the most influential pop culture slash technological events of our lives. Maybe the most influential, and that is the launch of the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES for short. How influential was it to us, you ask? Well, I mean, here we both sit, nearly 40 years later, two middle-aged men in our respective offices recording this show, both surrounded by multiple pieces of NES-related memorabilia. <laughs> we regularly talk to each other about old Nintendo games. We still play them. One of our very first episodes of this show was about how one Nintendo game in particular kind of changed our lives, and that was our Legend of Zelda episode. It was so influential to us, in fact, that when we think of our childhoods, we think of them as having two very distinct periods. Am I right? Before Nintendo and after Nintendo. Yes. We've talked about this before. After the Christmas of 1986, the day we each got our Nintendo Entertainment Systems, toys kind of became obsolete. All we wanted to play with was Nintendo. Now, the NES wasn't our first game console. We spent plenty of time in that pre-Nintendo era playing other video game systems. Uh, Atari, Vectrex, the Odyssey. Atari, the, the Atari 2600 in all its forward paneled glory was definitely the big one for us and pretty much everyone else we were really still toddlers when the atari 2600 initially launched in 1977 but a lot of people would say that the killer app for that system was space invaders and that actually came out in 1980 by that time the atari 2600 had given us a taste for video games and we were irrevocably hooked then came the great crash of 1983 the Pac-Man fever had broken, and for a moment, it looked like this was no more than a passing fad. I want to take a second to talk about that crash that happened in 1983, just so everyone can fully appreciate what an uphill battle Nintendo was facing when launching the NES here in 1985, because by then, there basically was no American home video game market. It had basically imploded a couple of years earlier. So rewind to 1983, the market was beyond saturated. It was a mess. There was just a crazy number of video game systems on the market, all fighting for shelf space and consumers' dollars. There was Intellivision, ColecoVision, the Odyssey 2, the Vectrex, just to name a few. As we said, the Atari 2600 was definitely the, the big one, the most popular, but by 1983, its library had become just flooded with garbage. It was almost impossible to find a good game. Consumers were confused about which console to buy, and they were tired of getting burned by terrible games. And this downward spiral culminated in the crash, this huge recession in the American video game market. In just a couple of years, the industry saw a 97% drop in sales revenue. Wow. And understandably, retailers felt burned too. Most wanted nothing more to do with video game systems. They were stuck with a ton of unsellable stock and... As a result, it seemed like every store back then had just a giant bargain bin full of Atari cartridges. And I'm pretty sure that's, that's how we both ended up with so many Atari games. I feel like we had just a ton of them. 
We really did. And, you know, I think at that age, we were not really aware of the, the concept of a video game crash. I don't think I appreciated that that was happening on a business level. But from a personal standpoint, right, we had dozens and dozens of Atari games. And the novelty really kind of wore off. There was only so much you could do on a very rudimentary system. And I really feel like you saw that the system was much older than at least it was to us. You know, that 1977 launch became suddenly, you know, very, very obvious that it was long in the tooth. And so I think we started to look back at other toys. It just, we realized that there just wasn't much more legroom or places to go. And then everything changed. The Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, was an 8-bit home video game console released initially in Japan as the Family Computer, commonly shortened as the Famicom, during that dark period of the 83 crash. So interesting that it kind of released on the other side of the world, because I think it would have been an absolute no-go in 83 in the U.S. You know, it was sort of the middle of everything. But it arguably, single-handedly revitalized and, frankly, I would argue, reinvented the video game industry in the United States and throughout the world. first time I heard about the NES was from my cousin. He was a year older and had heard rumors of an amazing new type of video game system coming. This was probably around 1985. To be perfectly honest, I wasn't actually all that excited at the time. We were sort of over home video games, and although we still love the arcades, right, because they felt a little bit like something new and exciting, the home systems really seemed to be at a dead end. My, my beloved system was that Magnavox Odyssey 2, which originally came out in North America in 1979 as well. Uh, and at this time, even that was seeming really old with the games pushing eight, you know, the systems were pushing eight years old and the games were just out of fuel. As a remarkable side note, however, the Odyssey 2 actually launched in Japan in 1982, a full four years after its initial European release. What's fascinating to me too is that, you know, technology was moving at a very rapid pace, but here we were playing with systems that were five, six, seven, and eight years old. So I think that was part of the disconnect between our experience of these systems and what was actually going on. Released initially in Japan in July of 1983, the Nintendo Entertainment System would not come to the States for a few years. It actually launched in a small test market in New York in October of 85, and then went on to take the world by storm. There was this really nice retrospective in Wired Magazine, and Chris Kohler writes about this early struggle Quote, retailers didn't want to listen to the little startup Nintendo of America talk about how its Japanese parent company had a huge hit with the Famicom. In America, video games were dead, dead, dead. Personal computers were the future, and anything that just played games but couldn't do your taxes was hopelessly backwards, unquote. You know, that's another contributor to that big crash of the video game market, the fact that home computers were becoming more affordable and accessible. They just seemed to make much more sense to families to buy instead of just a dedicated video game machine. Absolutely. And I feel like we were actually aware of the technology increasing over time in those systems. You could get more RAM and better screens. So we were watching this, this maturation that really had come to a complete halt on the home systems. In that same article, he continues a little bit later on, quote, Nintendo knew it had to get away from the term video game. So it took its marketing emphasis off of the traditional games played with a controller even though these comprised the vast majority of Nintendo Entertainment System games and focused on two accessories that it had released for Famicom in Japan. 
The Zapper Light Gun, of course, played the target shooting game Duck Hunt, and Rob, the robotic operating buddy, word and spun around, taking commands from the television, helping you play complex games like Gyromite. This was light years ahead of Atari, went the message. It has a robot, unquote. And it's with those two accessories, the gun and the robot, that Nintendo was able to market the system to retailers here in America, not as another video game console, like the, the piles of unsold ones they still had gathering dust in their storerooms, but a really cool uh, toy, an electronic toy that the whole family would enjoy. An entertainment system, if you will. And they pulled it off. They convinced enough retailers and sold enough units to try and sell the system to the rest of the country. It's so true, and I think it fits in beautifully with the fact that we were focused on different types of toys and technology, and Nintendo really came with the whole package. Well, in early 1986, they expanded into L.A., then Chicago, then San Francisco, and at the end of that year, it went nationwide with Super Mario Brothers finally ready for its North American release. And it really does check out, as we talked about in our Sears Wishbook episode, that 1985 edition, there was no mention of Nintendo at all. But in 86, an entire page was devoted to it. It was actually page 529, to be exact, one page after Laser Tag and Photon, and the page before Rambo and the Force of Freedom toys. <laughs> the, uh, the copy is great. It's hilarious on the page. Quote, Introducing the Nintendo Entertainment System, it is a fully equipped video system with the most progressive components, such as a robot and a light-sensing zapper light gun sold separately, true-to-life graphics, and a vast library of games. Plus, it's not just for kids. The system is both simple and sophisticated enough to challenge the abilities of everyone in your family. High-impact plastic body construction, imported, warrantied, for ages 8 and up. And then they close by saying, order early, avoid disappointment. I love that. It's so creative. And boy, I think these guys were really ahead of their time in thinking also about the fact that it wasn't just for kids, right? right. Because we know, especially as the, the key demographic market for video games right now, 45-year-old men, it really does have an appeal to adults. And as imagined, there was the robotic operating buddy and the zapper prominently featured with the text. And it said, these robot games let you team up with the robotic operating buddy, Rob for short, for action-packed video games. I mean... How could you resist this? This is amazing. Will you be the one to witness the birth of the incredible Nintendo Entertainment System? The one to play with Rob, the extraordinary video robot, batteries not included. He helps you tackle even the toughest challenge. Will you be the first to raise the incredibly accurate Zapper and play games like Duck Hunt or action-packed Hogan's Alley and high-flying Kung Fu, each sold separately? Will you be the one to experience the Nintendo Entertainment System? Comes with Rob, Zapper, Control Deck, two controllers, Gyromite, and Duck Hunt. The core system was just $89.99, and that converts to about 215 bucks in today's money. But if you got the Zapper and Rob as a set, it was just $149.97. That was $10 off from buying each separately, which makes it around $350 today. That puts it pretty comparable to the systems today. And in fact, it makes Nintendo Switch at $299 even a pretty good deal, but very much in line with these prices. I remember that. 1986 issue of the wish book so well i cut out the pictures of the nes and rob the robot and i taped them up next to my bed <laughs> and i would just lay there and look at them by the time we got the catalog we had already seen this amazing new system in person and it had been love at first sight and that love first blossomed in a magical place called kmart 
our local Kmart. I mean, it doesn't get more romantic than that. Cue the angelic music. <laughs> our Kmart, our local Kmart was a, a fixture of our childhood. We bought all of our toys there and our cassette tapes there. And one day we went in and they, they had this Nintendo demo unit. And we would play it every time we were there. Every time our parents went to Kmart for anything, uh, we would go with them. My dad would be like, oh, I've got to go get some spark plugs. And I'm like, oh, my God, take me with you. And I would you know, go to Kmart <laughs> just so we could get as any possible time we could with this thing. And uh, it was there that we got to check out a bunch of the games that would be available when the system went on sale. I totally remember that. And despite Kmart's dingy dark and often so very gross. dirty inside with its famous blue light specials it really was an amazing place to showcase it and what was great is that we could actually spend a little time getting to know these games and before that i don't think we had any any kind of a connection to, to a system like that you never got to actually demo something outside of maybe a computer store where you could see something playing or an arcade where the dem- you know the units were on demonstration mode but this you could actually interact so what's pretty interesting to think about the launch And I think this is important too. It actually launched with 17 games. So Duck Hunt and Gyromite were included with the console along with the Zapper and Rob to play them, of course, if you got the big, you know, deluxe console. But the other games were Ten Yard Fight, Baseball, Clue Clue Land, Donkey Kong Jr. Math, getting the edutainment piece there, (laughs) right, for the parents who were on the edge, Excite Bike, Golf, Hogan's Alley, Ice Climber, Kung Fu, Mock Rider, Pinball, Stack Up, Tennis, Wild Gunman, and Wrecking Crew. Before we talk about, I want to talk about the games themselves, obviously, but I want to mention something else that immediately set this system apart, and that's just the box art for these games. The The boxes, even that was different. Uh, other systems games back then had, like, amazing artwork on their boxes and the, the cartridge labels, right? Uh, in fact, I have a whole book, this hard, beautiful hardcover book called Art of Atari that showcases all the beautiful paintings and stuff they made. Mm. They're, they're just great. And then you got home, fired up the game, and you were just looking at blocks on the screen, right? <laughs> Had to use the old imagination to make it look like the, uh, the picture on the box. But Nintendo, they showed you exactly what you were going to get on screen on the front of the box. There was no fancy paintings, just blocky, pixelated, but very charming artwork that was really a good representation of what the game looked like. And I wonder if that was somewhat intentional after all the things that consumers had been through dealing with... Um, all the terrible stuff with, you know, console games up until that point, uh, a way to offer some sort of a little bit of transparency to mm. them. Uh, the people who would be understandably a little hesitant before spending more money on a game that looked amazing on the box, but ended up being terrible. You know how when you see the photograph in the ad of a cheeseburger and then you see the reality, you know, it's sort of <laughs> right. like the ideal conception and the reality. It was very much that feeling with the older games. And this really gave us some transparency. Yeah. So as for the games themselves, there were definitely some weird choices, but I think this was a really a really good launch lineup. You had several solid sports games. Uh, ten-yard fight, you had football, baseball. I actually played Nintendo Tennis the other day, and it's still super fun. Two very different driving-slash-racing games with Mock Rider and Excite Bike, and they were both super fun in their own ways. The Zapper was well-utilized with Hogan's Alley and Wild Gunman. You got something else to do with, with your Rob the Robot in Stack Up which I believe was the only other game that was ever made for him. One of our absolute favorite games of all time, Kung Fu, was a great home version of the arcade game by Irem. In fact, and I think you'll agree with me, I think it plays better than the original arcade version. 100%. You know, we've gotten to play both of them very recently and compare them. And the original arcade version has great vision, 
but it is really difficult and lacks just a little bit of polish. When you play it on the Nintendo Entertainment System, it's just one level up. Even though the graphics aren't necessarily better, the control, the mechanics, the feel is part of what makes Nintendo games magic. And then, of course, we have Donkey Kong Jr. Math, as you pointed out, because what arcade classic isn't made even better by the inclusion of math? <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming they, they they wanted an educational title. They thought it was a good idea to try to win over retailers like, see, this can help your kid learn math, just like one of those fancy home computers, but it has Donkey Kong. <laughs> yeah, very weird choice. The omission of, of actual Donkey Kong in this initial launch lineup is very interesting. Because that was by far Nintendo's most successful and well-known game ever at the time. And maybe that was the problem. Maybe it was a little too well-known. The retailers that they were pitching the NES to probably had bargain bins there uh, full of various other lousy versions of Donkey Kong that they couldn't sell. So, uh, Although none of them looked as close to the arcade as this one did, but still. Uh, it was a cool lineup. What, do you th- what would you say your favorite game of those original launch titles was? I think my favorite launch game at that time was Excitebyte. Since then, I've fallen more in love with, you know, as we just discussed, the magical simplicity and gorgeous art of Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. But Excitebike, for its time, was so neat. And for me, somebody who really loves to tinker and explore, the ability to build your own tracks was absolutely mind-blowing to me. I was reading about this a little bit, just remembering it, and I came across this essay on the, the website Destructoid. And this really resonated deep deeply with me about this concept. It was written by a guy named Jordan Starkweather. His nom de plume is Jackal 27. And he wrote, quote, however, it wasn't the thought of racing dirt bikes or jumping off huge ramps that kept us coming back. No, almost always the default mode of gameplay that we chose was the third option sitting directly below selection B. He goes on to say, creation was simple. You moved your little racer forward with the A button, select it apart from the bottom of the screen with the D-pad, and press the B button to place it on the track. In hindsight, though, it amazes me how truly ahead of its time Excitebike really was. For an NES game to give the player that much creative freedom is almost unheard of, unquote. And it really was. To be able to play, I mean, to truly play and explore the consequences of different designs on this simple but incredibly satisfying physics with this tiny little motorcycle, that made a huge impact on me. I don't think I'd ever done anything quite like that before. And it really did feel much more like a computer. I think, you know, calling it the Famicom was actually spot on because you definitely couldn't do something like this in the arcades. That creation aspect that was there in a few of those launch games Excitebike is is definitely the one that sticks out to me the most. That was the most fun in terms of building and creating. I remember there were there were these mysterious save and load options on the menu. Yes. Right? Where you'd presumably be able to save and replay your tracks, but it didn't work for us. We actually never got that functionality here in the US. In Japan, those used the Famicom data recorder, it was called. It was a cassette tape recorder add-on for the Famicom. Oh my god. So you can save and load stuff for stuff like Excitebike. Yeah. My favorite launch games, I loved Excitebike. But there were two that I played almost exclusively at that Kmart demo kiosk. One was Kung Fu, which we talked about a bunch. We obviously both loved. The other one that I played all the time, I'm kind of cheating with this one because it wasn't officially a launch title for the system, but it was a launch title for us when the NES arrived here in the Midwest the next year. And that was Super Mario Brothers, which, you know, you kind of can't talk about the early days of the system without mentioning Super Mario Brothers, arguably one of, if not the most influential games of all time. Actually, until we did the research for this episode, I didn't realize that Super Mario Bros. was not 
in that batch of launch games from that initial limited release mm. because it's so synonymous with the system. Like I said, I, I had just assumed it was, but I spent every precious second at that demo kiosk playing one of those two games, Super Mario Brothers or Kung Fu. I'd be in line because after a while there was a line to play this. Thing. I feel like we, we got in on it early. We discovered it early and then the word got out and you would go to Kmart and there'd be a line and you're like, what the, and you got to stand and wait your turn. I'd be in line trying to decide which one I was going to play that session. In fact, when I would lie in my bed, staring longingly at those pictures I cut out of the Sears catalog, <laughs> I would think to myself, which of those two games would I, would I be in the mood to play right now at this moment? Super Mario Brothers or Kung Fu? And when we first played it at Kmart, the element of the NES that we need to talk about, the one that made it literally feel so entirely and just immediately different from anything else we'd played before, was the controller, the Nintendo control pad. There was no joystick, just a directional pad that you pushed with your thumb. It was so foreign at the time, but it felt so good to play with. Right away, it just felt right. Mm -hmm. Now, that cross-shaped D-pad was engineered by Gunpei Yokoi for their Donkey Kong Game & Watch handheld. He actually created the Game & Watch as well as the original Game Boy, And that design went on to be used on the Famicom and NES, and it's kind of perfect. But there's a reason why you only ever saw that specific cross-shaped D-pad on Nintendo controllers for a long time. Nintendo patented it. I did not realize that. Wow. So while D-pads became the standard and showed up on basically every controller made from that point forward, no one else could use that simple, perfect cross-shape for their D-pads. We got a bunch of weird variations on it, right? All with varying degrees of success none of which were as good as Nintendo's original design. And that definitely took some conditioning to use that thing for extended play sessions mm. because unbeknownst to my parents, that Christmas night, the night I got the NES, I stayed up pretty much all night playing it. <laughs> and I woke up the next morning with a massive, just terrifying blister on my thumb. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, it was disgusting. It was horrible. Poor little hands were used to the, uh, the soft, rubbery coating on the Atari 2600 joystick. The D-pad on the Nintendo was... It's hard and unforgiving. The uh, the whole the whole look of the system, not just the controllers, but the whole package was different than any other game system we'd ever seen by design. I'm sure because again, we can't stress this enough. Nobody wanted to sell a video game console anymore. Let's talk about the unique look and design of the NES. You know, while the Japanese edition, the Famicom, had a very simple slot in the top, you could just insert the cartridge directly in, very much like the Atari 2600, the U.S. design had this weird door covering the cartridge slot where you inserted it horizontally and then you pushed it down to lock it into place. And apparently this was designed to kind of replicate the feeling of a VCR where it does that same sort of motion. This concept of... The, this zero insertion force or a ZIF slot was re- actually redesigned by Lance Barr. And the thought here is that by doing so, it could help decrease some of the strain on components. Of course, it also helped distinguish it from some of these older pre-crash systems. And then finally, I found a line stating that Nintendo wanted to avoid potential electrostatic hazards in the dry Southwest American states where front-loading design potentially could be safer if kids were interacting with the console because they would just be sort of protected and one step removed from the electrical components. At the top of the episode, I mentioned our Nintendo and NES memorabilia that we each have. And I think my favorite piece that we both own is Lego's Nintendo Entertainment System. 
It's uh, the Nintendo console and controller, a little TV, and a Super Mario Brothers cartridge, all made out of Lego, that you can actually insert in the console, in the control deck, and they did an amazing job of replicating the experience and the feel. You open up the door, you slide the cartridge in, and then you give it a little little push down, little click down, just like the real thing. It's just amazing. It really is. They, they're masterful in the, the getting every detail right down to the feel. Do you remember on the bottom side of the console, there was this very magical and mysterious port that said future use only? Yes, I swear it did say something like that. So on the bottom of the original system, there was this small section that was a, it was a removable plastic cover and you took it off and under that was an expansion port of some kind. Apparently some ideas were thrown around, everything from a modem for playing games online to gambling. Wow. Uh, But it never ended up being used for anything super mysterious to us back then though. It really was. And it kind of gave the sense that there was more to the story or more to come. It had this future proof sense. Something that definitely seemed like a throwback and definitely not futuristic was when games would not connect. And I remember very, very clearly blowing in games for years. <laughs> there was this this really fun and pretty comprehensive article in Mental Floss by Chris Higgins. And the title of the article is, Did Blowing in Nintendo Cartridges Really Help? He writes, quote, When things went wrong inside your NES, the problem was usually a bad connection between the cartridge and its slot. This could be due to tarnishing, corrosion, crud in various places, weak pins in the slot, or other issues. The symptoms of a bad connection could include the game not starting at all, the console showing a blinking light, or the game starting with garbage all over the screen. To combat these problems in the mid-1980s, my friends and I learned the secret. If we took out the cartridge, blew in it, and reinserted it, it worked. And if it didn't work the first time, it eventually worked on the second or fifth or tenth time. But looking back on it, I wondered, did that blowing actually help? And if it did, why? Was dust the culprit? And... I was blowing it out of the cartridge, unquote. Anyways, it's really a neat article, and he interviews this guy, Frankie Vitorello, who is one of the hosts of the gaming show Digital Press Webcast, who says, quote, while I admittedly may have dabbled in a little cartridge blowing as a naive NES-playing youth, I've long since been an advocate for not doing it with a stance that, for whatever it may do, to aid in the temporary functionality of an NES, it ultimately opens the door for damage and distress to the hardware. So they go on to point out some potential theories about why it might work, and they sort of conclude that it may be partially just seating and reseating it over and over. Maybe if you didn't blow on it, it would just be the same as taking it in and out. There may be some effect of the moisture in our breath that is having some effect on the electrical connection. But in some, they sort of summarize it by saying that uh, in a brief note on the NES Game Pack troubleshooting page, Nintendo states, do not blow into your Game Packs or systems. The moisture in your breath can corrode and contaminate the pin connectors. So this is kind of interesting. And reading a few stories online, horror stories where there was mold and gunk and, and corrosion of the metal tells us that this was not the way, even though I swear it seemed to work. Lies. All lies. It's the only thing that worked. Uh, <laughs> we had, we recently had a problem with our Nintendo Switch, which uses, you know, these little tiny cards and we couldn't get one to read. And so I was about to go get some alcohol and a little wipe and just very gently kind of clean the connectors on it. And my kid, it was so cute. He's like, wait, daddy, I know what to do. And he takes a little card and gives a little <laughs> blows on it. 
He's like, remember like you used to do. I'm like, yeah, like I used to do. It's adorable. The circle of life. (laughs) I think this was good. I think this, I think we covered our initial experiences with the NES really well. I mean, look, we have, we could spend hours, hours and hours talking about this system and what it meant to us personally in our lives way too much for one show. We just kind of wanted to cover the, wanted to cover the very beginning of things uh, and talk about how, even from the beginning, how special this machine was to us. I mean, absolutely. So many of our nights and weekends were spent huddled around a 12 or 14 inch screen that it really was the backdrop for half of our childhood. And I think about that Christmas of 86, you know, my childhood Christmases, I can't really distinguish one from the other. They all kind of blend together except for that one. And that one I I remember almost every minute of, I feel like from first thing in the morning, sitting there waiting to open presents, analyzing the shape and size of every single box under that tree, trying to figure out which, if any of those, would be a Nintendo, to all the times I ran upstairs and snuck into my room to try to get just a few minutes with Kung Fu or Super Mario Brothers before my mom found me and chased me back downstairs to go play with my cousins who were over for Christmas. <laughs> and, uh, and that night, waiting, I remember just waiting just long enough to make sure my parents thought I was asleep. And then I got out of bed and had that near all-nighter that almost cost me my thumb. As I mentioned, this was just the beginning, the beginning of our lives with Nintendo. We have many more stories, memories, and experiences we cannot wait to share with you on future episodes of the show. Video games were already important to us and had already begun to shape and define our generation. But when the NES came into our lives, it changed everything. Opening up huge worlds to learn about and explore, challenging games to frustrate as they delighted us, and our first real taste of powerful technology made of high-impact plastic. It is no wonder that Nintendo is so beloved to so many. The seismic shift in our day-to-day discussions, our Christmas lists, and our free time continues to ripple out to this very day. The torch has passed hands over the generations of systems, with Sega, Sony, and Microsoft having moved into the leading roles at various points. But the founder and king, at least in our hearts and minds, is and will always be Nintendo. And on that note, stay limber.